Radioland, Podcastville, and all our LARB readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Eric. And today we are going to be listening to a conversation that you and our other host, Kate Wolf, had with Lucy Ives, the author of a recently released novel called Impossible Views of the World. That's right. Kate and I spoke with Lucy from the studio. She was in New York. The novel is really smart. It's really fun. It was a pleasure to talk to Lucy. So the novel is set primarily in New York, right? And orbits around the Metropolitan Museum or some version of that? That's right. Yes. It's a version of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Lucy Ives' mother was actually a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh. So she knows whereof she speaks. And it's a really funny and interesting investigation of institutions, the massive institution like the Met, a funny sort of uh, satire of academia. And it's just a, a sort of fun romp through the New York social world. That sounds fun. Yep, Let's listen to it. Let's do it. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Lucy Ives, who's in New York at the moment. Lucy Ives is the author of several books of poetry and short prose, including The Hermit and the novella 90s. Her writing has appeared in Art Forum, Lapham's Quarterly, at NewYorker.com, and at the Los Angeles Review of Books, where we're very happy to have her as a contributor. For five years, she was an editor with the online magazine Triple Canopy. A graduate of Harvard and the Iowa Writers' Workshop, she holds a PhD in comparative literature from New York University. Her first novel, Impossible Views of the World, is just out from Penguin Press. Thanks for being on the phone with us, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So tell us about this book and how you came to write it. I think I read that you started it while you were working on your PhD. Yeah, that's correct. I started this novel by accident because I was intending to be writing the prospectus for a dissertation about transatlantic influences in modernist poetry. (laughs) And somehow I just ended up envisioning this sort of harried young woman who was going up the stairs of a museum that very much resembled the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And things just kind of spiraled from there, I think. And I was working on this book for many years, actually. It was a funny thing that I didn't really intend to do, but it just kind of happened to me. Was there overlap with your academic work or it was just a completely Um, different realm entirely? (laughs) I don't know if there, there are differences between my academic work and this novel, but it definitely fed off things that I was interested in and looking at. And then I began to put things into the novel that later came to inhabit my dissertation. So I think that in some way, My dissertation was actually inspired by this novel (laughs) and inspired by some of the institutional histories that are in the novel. Maybe this is a good opportunity for you to tell our listeners a little bit about the novel and what the novel is about. So the novel is about a young woman who 
is in her early 30s, and she is a curator at a museum in Manhattan called the Central Museum of Art, which is abbreviated using the acronym CMART. And she's a specialist in caricatures and political cartoons of the 18th and 19th century, primarily American, but she also has some knowledge about French satirical drawings, too. And in the course of the novel, the novel takes place over a week. She has to deal with some difficult romantic entanglements and also figure out what has happened to one of her colleagues who has stopped showing up to work. Can you tell us about her? I think it's a funny coincidence or not necessarily coincidence, but the tone, the fact that she's a curator or a specialist in these kind of satirical drawings seems to have some bearing on her tone in the novel. She has a very comic voice. She's droll. She's self-deprecating. And yet she also has a kind of electric intelligence. Maybe you could tell us about how you came to cultivate her voice and if that came to you right away, did you have to work with it? Or did you ever falter with it? What kind of process was that? Sure. Well, I think her voice has a lot to do actually with another novel that I read and love very much, which is Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amos. Mm -hmm. And it's a novel that reading it, I kind of wanted to be inside that kind of language myself. And Stella's way of seeing and talking is 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 kind of a like homage on some level, but also a way for me to think about the world or this fictional world in a satirical way through language. So Stella, I think you're right, Stella kind of has these little clusters of language that she uses to kind of make an image out of events and things she sees and to kind of try to understand, but also to kind of distill what's happening so that she can kind of process it and move through the world because she's dealing with a lot of difficulties, essentially. I mean, she's it's kind of a, a difficult time in her life, let's say. So the satirical element is a way for her to manage problematic people and events. The Kingsley Amos inspiration makes sense particularly with the tone. I mean, there were times when I was like, I thought even veered into something like P.G. Woodhouse and the Jeeves books, but in particular also with the sort of institutional satire. It's a kind of campus satire. It doesn't take place on a university, but on the sort of campus of this museum. Did it make your own academic work seem absurd? <laughs> because, <laughs> because it, you know, it does remind you of the various ways in which academic language and the kind of activities that one is made to perform, not only in jobs, but in academia, is can be a little silly. Well, I don't think that there was a causal relationship there. So in other words, writing this book did not make my academic work seem absurd, if I can put things slightly. But I think I thought a lot about the necessity of a kind of stylized relationship to things on the part of the scholar. In other words, one's always thinking about, you know, what is 
what is my unit of analysis? In other words, how can I relate to the world in an analytic way? And there is something absurd about that because it's obviously not the full extent of, you know, human (laughs) experience or capabilities. It can really become quite overwhelming, that way of seeing the world and also talking about it, which is perhaps what's more relevant when it comes to Stella. I mean, she's really interested in that old saw of discourse. So how do we talk about things? How do we name things? That's kind of an obsession of hers. I also thought, of course, there's a very, you know, played for lots of, to a very humorous effect of the tension of kind of the rarefied arcane knowledge that is being protected in this museum or that Stella is engaging in and then the setting of, you know, this corporate sponsorship and these kind of the institutional critique, subtle institutional critique. But I mean, that is a real, which obviously you didn't invent, that's a real kind of tension perhaps in museums in general that to my knowledge doesn't exist in quite the same way in academia, although it's just different. But I was wondering, is that something that you had a comment on or had, you know, had been noticing over the years as someone who lives in New York and who has a personal relationship to museums and the art world? Did you want the novel to say something about that in particular? Or Well, I think just to say, I have been told that there is a sense in the part of the museum that in a way the museum would love for corporations to have a sense of responsibility to the arts and to culture. And I'm not sure to what extent Vanze, which is the name of this, the Belgian fictional Belgian water management corporation that exists in my novel, the extent to which there are really corporate interests who even behave with so much interest in Uh, museum's activities. I really can't, I can't fully speak to that because I'm not someone who works at a museum. And my point of view is sort of, as a, I don't know what to say, a semi-insider or maybe someone whose insider knowledge is a bit outdated. But I'm, I'm interested in that dynamic in the novel for other reasons. And I think what's interesting to me is there's a utopian side of this fictional corporation. And one of its interests without giving too much away is to not simply manage like a single resource or to conduct a business, but to create urban centers or to create from nothing new urban centers for the future. And that's sort of like what it is about to begin doing. And it's very interested in the nexus of technology and interested in some ways in extracting knowledge from the cultural institution that it's supporting. And it's actually that that is, I think, the sort of salient thing about this relationship between the fictional corporation and the fictional museum is this question of extraction of knowledge of information and also of certain kinds of prestige. I know that your mother, I know from reading a really lovely piece that you recently published in Vogue, that your mother was a curator at the Met for many years. And so I'm wondering if your relationship to the museum, or I don't know, the Met in particular, or museums in general, has changed over time. Because I could imagine as a child to get to go to a museum and have insider access must have been just beyond magical. 
I'm sure your feelings towards museums have changed, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that transition or how they have changed if they have. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, as a child, I think I was both, I felt at once like really safe in the museum and had that kind of magical feeling and almost thought of it as another home or place that I had some kind of personal relationship with and also very overwhelmed by it. Sometimes I would have strange dreams about it. So it was always a kind of ambiguous space for me. And as I've gotten older, I think I've come to appreciate more the complexity of institutions like this. And in a way, there's something very interesting about the interdisciplinary nature of museums and the different kinds of work that having them entails. And I think just as a as a person who has maybe like a scholarly relationship to institutional histories, that's something that over time, the ways in which people work to make the experience that you have of going to a gallery has changed. And that's quite interesting to me. So I think I probably have a less emotional relationship to the museum than I used to, but maybe there's something about this novel that's like trying to reclaim some of the old feeling. I'm not sure. Can I ask you what kind of dreams you had about the museum? Sure. Well, some of the most memorable ones I actually wrote about in this, very briefly in this Vogue essay, and I had these recurring dreams of walking up a certain staircase that's actually in the American wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it's not the department where my mother worked, so I have no idea why we would have been walking on this staircase. But in the dreams of this staircase, which is a white marble staircase that has, I believe, brass railings, the staircase would never end. It would just continue up and up, and we would be forever on this staircase walking upward through the museum without ever entering a gallery. And I guess there was something, it's hard to sort of qualify what kind of a dream this was. I think it might have been a nightmare. I'm not sure. It sounds though. like a, uh, almost like a nightmare, at least anxiety inducing. Yeah, there's something about anxiety, but also, again, this, this sort of overwhelming ambiguity of the museum as a place where culture is kind of reproduced and repackaged and dis- disseminated in these curated ways and how, I don't know, complex that is and how we have very mixed feelings about that. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. Amani Tolliver, author of Runaway, a memoir in verse, has joined us once again in the studio to give us her book recommendation. Well, hi. Hello. (laughs) I love Hunger by Roxane Gay. It was so moving. I've seen a lot of odd criticism Mm -hmm. about the book. I see ways in which she is attacked personally. I think her book is incredibly brave, and it's very specific. Therefore, it's very universal, her experiences. We all may not certainly 
have experienced some of the trauma that she's experienced. I mean, certainly for me as a rape survivor, I relate to her journey of healing. Mm -hmm. But I also am so, if it's okay to be, I'm so absolutely proud how she's exercised the things that survivors so often keep hidden so deeply within. Okay. But besides that, she also can make you laugh. She can make you roll your eyes at some mm-hmm. of the stories you can relate to. I just think it's a really brave, powerful, and very important book, Hunger by Roxane Gay. Oh, great. Thanks so much for coming back and speaking with us. Absolutely happy to. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Lucy Ives. Do you think the image that occurred to you when you were writing your prospectus of a young girl going up the stairs sort of frazzled was part of your dream images or a memory that you had? Possibly. I mean, I think that that scene is, uh, you know, translated through adult right, <laughs> exactly, and yeah. anxieties in a certain way. But unfortunately or fortunately, she comes to the top of the staircase and then things happen. Yes, so. she does eventually reach the office. Yeah. (laughs) And talk a little bit about things that happened to her in the book. It seems to me that you navigate through kind of different genres in this novel and in terms of the plot, because there's mystery, there's romance, and it's mostly through a satirical lens. But did you have rules for what could happen or what the bounds were? I also noticed there's a lot of reproduction of text, both like popular kind of writing style and academic was it kind of organic the way the 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 plot and structure came about or what did you plan it out beforehand or sure well so there was another author who's who's very important to me for this book which is who's Nabokov and I thought a lot about the games that he likes to play in his novels and the way that artworks and texts exist for him. I mean, that that this sort of paradigmatic example would be Pale Fire. And something that I wanted to do within the novel was to create places in which I, as the writer and the person who's directing the, the narrator, who's not really a substitute for me, but is a kind of tool for me to explore this space, could go into these different places different artworks, different texts, and kind of look at them and read them and engage in interpretive activities that would allow me to at once advance the plot and also to talk about other things in history and in the history of art that are interesting to me and and which I would like to be in proximity to one another for various reasons. The novel's not critical, maybe it's satirical, but there's something about the organization of it that is, even though it does have a plot, that that is kind of non-narrative and is about engaging in a kind of like pastiche sort of activity of putting things together and comparing them. I guess that's my comparative literature training coming out. But it was a lot of the work of organizing the novel was about like, how can I make this juxtaposition that I want to have happen? How can I put a room into the museum here or bring a new text in that will allow me to kind of have things coexist in a certain way that will be 
interesting, I guess, or expressive in some way. And so what role does the missing, as you mentioned, the novel starts off with one of Stella's colleagues is missing. How did you decide to use that? Well, I think that's a very important point. And and I think there's a kind of observation in your question, which is that this novel is all possible because the registrar of the Department of American Objects, which is the fictional museum department that the narrator Stella works for, this man, the registrar, Paul, has gone missing. And Paul is the person who's really responsible for the organization of the collection within that department as a text. So he's the person who sort of says, like, this has come in, this has left, this is where these things are. He's the person who establishes a checklist for each exhibition that takes place and so on and so forth. But this person, this sort of like cataloging, organizing force has gone missing. Mm. And so enter the narrator of this text who is now free to make her own catalog of this space and make her own system essentially of a, not just of organization, but of interpretation or maybe organization and interpretation are kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now that you mentioned Pale Fire, it also makes sense that Paul is a famous poet. Who goes missing. Yes, he's also a poet. <laughs> yeah. Are there other sort of allusions in the book that we might keep an eye out for or readers might keep an eye out for? Well, there's a rather large allusion to Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, The House of the Seven Gables. I don't know if I want to go into it. <laughs> yeah, we don't much, have to. But... Okay. We don't have to do that. Um, that makes sense. But there Yeah, it's a novel that's full of literary and artistic illusions. I mean, there are two fake novels within the novel, and both of these are completely made up and are not based on real novels. But there are real artists and writers such as Georges Sand and the satirist Daumier makes an appearance, and also Florian Stettheimer and Yasu Kuniyoshi and, and other American painters make appearances in, in different places. And so there's a mixture of real artworks, allusions to artworks, and then also fake artworks and fake, or I guess, fictional works of literature in the novel. And how much do you think that your mother's experience of working at the Met found its way into this novel as well? Or did any of it find its way into here? She has not read the novel yet, and I, I mean, she could tell you better than, than I can. But I have to say, I'm pretty sure that this curator doesn't bear much resemblance to <laughs> my mother. Uh-huh. And I'm not sure what that means, to be honest with you. I think I just, in a way, of course, this is a novel about, partially about my relationship with my mother, but it's also a novel about my relationship with the Metropolitan Museum of art. And again, the museum in the novel is not the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's a different museum. And there are other museums that are also incorporated into this museum. I mean, the Brooklyn Museum is certainly present in this in this fictional museum as well. So it's a kind of, a, it's a mixture. I mean, again, the sort of pastiche thing and also the idea of, of satire as a kind of hash of a sort of plate of different things. I think there were just certain moments for me as a child of coming to the museum that I think have really stuck with me. And it's those those kind of 
strange impressions, those kind of fantastical impressions that you have as a child that are not the same as the ones that you would have as an adult, as a professional. And it's those childlike kind of experiences that really, I think, inspire a lot of the idea of the museum in this novel. Mm -hmm. And what's your relationship to New York these days, considering that you grew up there and you now obviously live there as an adult? Um, well, I live here. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep living here. My relationship to, I mean, that's a very big question. It's a, it's a place that is home for me. So I guess my relationship to it is as a place that is home. And, uh, it's a big space. There are a lot of other people here. So that geography is kind of always changing. Mm-hmm. Are you, you're not nostalgic. For a past New York? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that would mean, I guess. I mean, New York has changed a lot during my lifetime. I think that's that's something that a lot of people feel comfortable saying. You know, I think my relationship with the city, if I could be <laughs> so bold to, to say that, has improved <laughs> over time. I think growing up here... The complexity of the city, the the pace of the city, you know, the, its various, you know, disparities and beauties and, you know, and all of its, its, its different multiform aspects. These things are at once very familiar to you, but things that can also be distressing. And I guess over time, in a way, I have been able to find a place and a way of working that is livable for me, but it certainly wasn't something that was easy to do. In fact, I never imagined that I would continue living here as as an adult. I assumed that I would just go live somewhere else, kind of, but that it, it turns out that I actually feel, to the extent that anyone feels comfortable in New York, I feel somewhat comfortable here. I also really miss the subway when I don't ride the subway. I know that probably sounds strange, but it, no. it, it's a a place I feel strangely uh, at home. Mm-hmm. And what are you working on now? You you have lots of different outlets, but what are you focusing on now? Well, right now I'm editing a collection of writings by the poet and artist Madeline Ginz. She started publishing in the late 1960s and she's perhaps best known for her collaboration uh, with her partner, Shizuku Arakawa. They worked together on a project called Reversible Destiny, which was about creating architectural spaces that would, or so they believed, make it possible for human beings not to have to die, Mm. that these spaces could give you the choice not to not to die or help you see that as a as a choice and she she writes amazing beautiful experimental prose and i'm so i'm i'm editing a collection of her work starting from her work in the late 60s uh through the to the end of her life and i'm working on uh, a new novel also among other things this one is about poets so i've i'm sticking with a certain a certain theme <laughs> great that theme sounds juicy yeah <laughs> <laughs>
Well, we'll look forward to to that one. And and for now, thank you so much for being here and talking about impossible views of the world with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking such wonderful questions. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much, Lucy. Thank you, Lucy. Congratulations. Thanks. So we've been speaking with Lucy Ives. Her new novel is Impossible Views of the World. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Thank you.